Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. John Kennedy Toole's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, A Confederacy of Dunces, is revered all over the world for capturing the essence of New Orleans. On this week's show, we take an in-depth look at Confederacy from a food angle. Cookbook author Cynthia Nobles was our original inspiration for this episode of Louisiana Eats when she penned A Confederacy of Dunces Cookbook. But then, Cynthia introduced us to Lucky Dog owner Jerry Strahan, who was the inspiration behind Mr. Clyde, the fictitious owner of Paradise Vendors, a Lucky Dog-like business where Ignatius is portrayed as having worked at one time in the book. Then... Actor Spud McConnell joins us to discuss becoming Ignatius and brings that inimitable character to life in the way only Spud can. Fortuna's wheel is spinning upward on this week's Louisiana Eats. streetcar lines running between six lanes of traffic, Canal Street is the largest thoroughfare in New Orleans, bustling with people traipsing in and out of hotels, restaurants, and souvenir shops. Amid the clamor, a portly bronze statue stands perfectly still, eternally waiting under the clock of the former site of the D.H. Holmes department store. Oh, there's that guy. The figure's disheveled clothing and disparaging gaze suggest nothing resembling a war hero or esteemed citizen. Rather, this statue portrays the overweight, overeducated, and overall outrageous protagonist of a confederacy of dunces, Ignatius J. Riley himself, described here in the book's opening lines. A green hunting cap squeezed the top of the fleshy balloon overhead. The green ear flaps, full of large ears and uncut hair, and the fine bristles that grew in the ears themselves, stuck out on either side like turn signals indicating two directions at once. Full, pursed lips protruded beneath the bushy black mustache and, at their corners, sank into little folds filled with disapproval and potato chip crumbs. New Orleans author John Kennedy Toole finished his comedic masterpiece in the early 1960s. But the world wouldn't be introduced to Ignatius and the outrageous cast of characters until the book was published posthumously in 1980. After winning the Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 1981, a confederacy of dunces has become internationally revered for having captured the essence 
and eccentricity of New Orleans. Even though it's set in the early 60s, it was written back then, these characters are still here. And if you really want to get a flavor of New Orleans, don't watch that movie, The Big Easy. Read this book. To get a better sense of the novel's impact, we turn to an authority on all things Ignatius, Spud McConnell. In addition to being celebrated for his film, television, and theater roles, the Gonzales-born actor has become so well-known for his portrayal of Ignatius J. Riley on stage that the statue beneath the clock at the former D.H. Holmes was modeled after him. I said, the only thing I want is my name on it, you know, because normally you could get a fee for being a model and that kind of stuff. Uh, I, don't, I just want my name on the base plate, and they put it. So there it is. So it's John Wayne, Rocky Balboa, and Spud, you know. Everybody else is like some kind of saint or Civil War person, whatever. Well, Spud, mm-hmm. visually, people have come to identify you with the role. Mm-hmm. And I would like you, mm-hmm. from an actor's point of view, mm-hmm. tell us about becoming Ignatius. When did you first read the book? 1980. Mm-hmm. I don't know. My dean at Nickel State gave me the book. As he handed me the book, he goes, the person that I see, because at that time I wasn't that fat. He <laughs> said, the person I see playing Ignatius is Victor Buono. Oh, and he said, I can just see him sitting there, you know, belting. And blah, blah, blah. <laughs> anyway, so once I read the book, I went, yeah, I can see Victor Buono. And then the second time I read it, I see me. So when then Barry Kyle cast me, then I got a copy of it. And I just kept, I'd read it from beginning to end. And then I'd start over and read it again. So over a solid year, I read that book every day. I probably read it 50 times, getting ready for it and making decisions. And first off, I decided to do kind of everybody. If you'll read the book, you'll see that everybody speaks in their accents. Dorian Green, even though he's you know, just a fop, but uh-huh. he's a Midwest fop. So he has that, that Midwest kind of almost no dialect. But all the rest of them, they're all yats. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Lana Lee is from Texas. Like I'm, I think she's from Dallas. I'd have to go back and reread it. Somewhere up in there. But she's just a hardcore woman. But everybody, you know, like his mama has the yat dialect. Claude, Santa Bataglia's got the really hardcore dialect like that, you know. <laughs> and uh, I decided Ignatius is above all them. And if you read his, his – in the book, everybody's dialect is written into their speech, the way the words are yes. composed and the patterns and the way they're placed. And Ignatius speaks perfectly. He is a medievalist. He's not a yat. He loves and is, is affiliated with New Orleans, but he, you know, he is above everybody else. So I decided to affect an English accent because English people talk fancy. Mm-hmm. They talk fancy. And every time, even my daughter was sitting there going, I can't stand it when everybody, anytime somebody's highfalutin in a movie, they have an English accent. You know? <laughs> but that's what I decided to do. The thing of it is, I would say, I said there's a, there's a line in there where he calls somebody a cretin. Mm-hmm. And Barry goes, well, it's cretin. I go, yeah, I know that. But he is an affected British accent, okay? Right. He's watching the American bandstand on TV. He's not really watching Masterpiece Theater, you know, because uh-huh. he's smarter than Ma- <laughs> I mean, he thinks he's smarter than it, so he didn't have to watch it. Frankly, yes, he, he, he can't grasp a lot of that stuff. So, but in, in New Orleans, we say cretin. Yeah, we do. We don't say it much anyway. There's a lot of cretins <laughs> over here, but we don't say it. But that's, that was one of the examples of it's like, okay, I'm going to do my affected British dialect, but I'm going to do it incorrectly. 
because he's not worldly at all. I mean, those rolling hills near Baton Rouge that make him sick riding on the Greyhound Cena Cruiser lets you know right that he hasn't <laughs> been he hasn't been outside the city limits. He hadn't been to Metri. <laughs> you know? Yeah. He ain't right. been to Silent Sam's for crying out loud. So <laughs> How, how many food commonalities do you find between you and Ignatius? Because he did All have a very special All predilection for certain things. Oh, God, I'm a chili dog eating fool. I eat wine cakes. I don't suck the jelly out of a jelly donut. I just eat the jelly donut, although I have been known to lick it off my fingers because you take a bite and it squirts out. <laughs> I got named Spud because I'm fat. I was oh. fat in the 10th. I was, I was 10 years old and joined the Boy Scouts. So I was fat, and I'm still fat. Even though when I played Ignatius, though, I wore a fat suit. Oh, you I did. wasn't. If I had gotten, and I look, I got big. Don't get me wrong. I put on some weight, uh, but I, after Katrina, I put on. I was almost four hundred pounds when I quit smoking after Katrina, and so that's when I got diabetes. Uh. But um, if I would have weighed the four hundred plus pounds that I needed to weigh to look like Ignatius, I never would have made it across the stage. Yeah. How does it feel to be Ignatius? <sighs> Superior. Uh, smug. Uh, I graduated smart, even though I rag on my mother for even using that term. The fact is, I feel like that. I graduated smart. I have a master's degree from Tulane. What do you have? You know, <laughs> I mean, the only people I should have to look up to are doctorates, and I don't look up to them because they're idiots. I mean, this is a man who has no use for the Pope. You know, he would like he doesn't have anything to do with a democracy. He wants a he wants a benevolent dictator king. So that he can just lounge around. I mean, but, you know, look at him. He's got his, his jar of Noxzema and his rubber glove. And he's got, you know, big chief tablets all over the floor and massive mammoth yellow drawers. And, uh-huh. you know. It'd be fascinating if someone had ever um, looked at him from a psychological point of view and given us a diagnosis. Well, he's afraid of that, which is why he doesn't want to go to the charity. I have given so many copies of that book away to people. And the funny thing is that most of the women that I've given the book to hate Ignatius. They never, they don't make it through three chapters before they put the book down. He's an onanist, and that's one of the people he condemns in the beginning, in the in that opening like scene where he's waiting under the clock, and and uh, and uh, and Mancuso comes up. You don't leave me alone. This city is famous for its gamblers, prostitutes, exhibitionists, antichrists, alcoholics, sodomites, drug addicts, fetishists, onanists, pornographers, frauds, jades, litterbugs, and lesbians. <laughs> well, the one that he is in there is an onanist. That's what he does. And, I mean, he, he's, he's Ignatius. Yes. He's, not, he's completely unparalleled in, in literature. And he don't know what he is. Hate Ignatius, Baton Rouge food columnist and author Cynthia Nobles spent 18 months engrossed in the novel in order to write a Confederacy of Dunces cookbook, Recipes from Ignatius J. Riley's New Orleans. Like Spud preparing for his stage role, while writing the cookbook, Cynthia developed a personal relationship with Ignatius and his world, even if it meant putting on a couple of pounds in the process. Ignatius J. Riley loved to eat. He was a glutton. And as he goes through 
his rantings and ravings against the modern world, he talks about donuts, wine cakes, Dr. Nut, remember that? That's soda pop, all kinds of foods. So it was really easy for me to go through, pick out all the foods that Ignatius liked, that Santa Battaglia liked to cook, that uh, Mrs. Riley did not like to cook. I made recipes for the things she liked to eat out of a can. Uh, there, and there's just foods all throughout this book. So it was really pretty simple. I put the whole thing on my iPad. I had a list of all the foods. Then I would search for the words, find like French bread, go there and get the passage, and then create a recipe. And as you go through the book, you'll also see that I put lots of quotes from the novel into this cookbook that help people understand why these particular dishes were important to the novel. How long did it take you to write this book? It took me a year. Then it took about six months to edit and make sure all the recipes were just perfect. So basically for 18 months, you have had a very up-close and personal relationship with Ignatius Riley. I have, and I've read the novel three times in that year to be sure that I got everything right. So um, I feel a kinship with the book, its characters, and John Kennedy Toole, too. As a matter of fact, I learned when I was doing research for this book that when I lived uptown, John Kennedy Toole had actually lived right around the corner from where I'd lived when he was alive. I thought, wow, this was meant to be. If you'll notice, the very last chapter is on Toole, and um, it's a brief history of his life, which really was kind of tragic. He was a brilliant, brilliant guy, and I'm sure as most people know, he wrote the novel. It did not get published. He went into a depression, and he committed suicide. I like to think that if he were still around, he'd certainly approve of this cookbook. I think he would. It fascinated me that you pulled quotes out. Give me, give How me about a, this one? Ignatius belched the gas of a dozen brownies trapped by his valve. <laughs> that is just so typical of the quotes throughout the book. So I made triple chocolate belchless brownies to go with that quote. That's hilarious. How, how did you guarantee they were belchless? Well, I really can't guarantee that. <laughs> <laughs> they are pretty good, though, from what I've been told. Are these all your recipes, or are they recipes that you acquired from other places? The majority are my recipes. Some are from chefs, from local chefs, like um, the chef over at Elizabeth's gave me a recipe for a salad with hog jowls. I had no idea how to cook with that. A few home cooks, like, you know, Maureen Detweiler here oh, in New yes. Orleans. Maureen gave me a few of her old favorites. Like, she gave me her recipe for potato salad. Remember Santa Battaglia said, I fixed us a good potato salad, girl? That old man tells me he likes good potato salad with good old blue plate mayonnaise. So. Of course it has blue plate mayonnaise. I thought that would be good to include in here. I have another recipe here for, from um, Dr. Robert Cangelosi, too. Dr. Cangelosi grew up in the French Quarter, and he remembered growing up eating stuffed pasta tubes, mm. Tufoli, which I, had, I hate to admit I had never heard of Tufoli, T-U-F-O-L-I. And uh, he, he gave me his old family recipe. So I stuck that in my Santa Battaglia chapter as an Italian food. That's a very interesting layout part of the whole book, too, is that the book is not constructed as you would normally find a cookbook. Each chapter, you might find appetizers, desserts, savory things. Explain how you constructed 
the chapters? Well, first of all, each chapter starts with narrative. And you have to remember this the novel was written in the 1960s, and 1960s New Orleans was very different than it is now. Just think about Main Street. Yes. And that's where the book, where the novel opens in front of D.H. Holmes. So I did the whole first chapter on D.H. Holmes and all the department stores down Canal Street back in the 60s, what they looked like, what they sold, and uh, in particular at D.H. Holmes, what they cooked, because remember, they had that fantastic restaurant. They had oh, the, yes. I know there is a cookbook out there that's called the D.H. Holmes Cookbook, I believe. If you go to Newcomb College, they have a copy. So mine are all pretty close to that, too. Is there a jelly donut recipe? Yes, indeed, there's a jelly donut (laughs) recipe. I made donuts from scratch. I made jelly-filled donuts, and then I made the regular kinds with the holes. And what surprised me, honestly, I had never made donuts before in my life was really simple and they just turned out beautifully and I have to tell you something about the donuts and about all the bakery goods I put most of the bakery goods into the chapter on the German bakery remember Mrs. Um, Ryla would go to the German bakery to buy all of his donuts and cakes and stuff I had the most fun doing that chapter I gained 10 pounds, and it's the truth. (laughs) I gained 10 solid pounds. I did that chapter in about a month, and I've been working, and I just finally got that weight off. But anyway, (laughs) that is my favorite chapter because it was just so much fun making all these wonderful decadent pastries. That's sort of hilarious that you're working on a book about the famously obese Ignatius Riley, and you start to catch some of his weight yourself. (laughs) Exactly. dangerous. I did. Well, when you only eat donuts and cakes, that's what happens. I also found out, too, um, in the book it's called The German Bakery, and for years people around town have been trying to figure out what did John Kennedy Toole model that bakery off of. I finally got in touch with George Gertner. He's a writer here in New Orleans, and he told me that it was based on Schwab's, which is no longer there. Right. Do you remember Schwab's? Of course I do. He was actually a friend of John Kennedy Tools, and he said they used to hang out there. And that's, oh. that was the model for the German bakery. So I was pretty proud of finding that out because so many people had wondered, and they were saying all kind of different um, bakeries that just didn't quite sound right. But I think that's the correct one. And, of course, one of my favorite characters, Myrna Minkoff, she writes to Ignatius and she says, I don't know why you insisted on living down there with the alligators. Well, I'm a big believer in that you've got to eat the alligator before it eats you. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) And that's exactly why I put the recipe for alligator dogs in there, because of Myrna's quote. That is just incredible. And, of course, any conversation about Ignatius Riley certainly would have to include some big Lucky Dog talk. Tell me about your relationship with Lucky Dogs now. Jerry Strahan, a fantastic guy who actually wrote a book titled Managing Ignatius about Lucky Dog vendors. He wrote it for LSU Press several years back, and um, I set up a meeting with him, and he just gave me hours and hours, and we talked about weenies and peddling (laughs) weenies on the streets of New Orleans. It was fascinating. Did you eat Lucky Dogs with him? Not that day, but about a week later, I took several pictures on the street, and I ate a couple of them, and I have to say, they are delicious. One thing I did learn from Jerry is that his weenie carts are regularly inspected by the state and by the city, 
several times, you know, on, on several different fronts. And so they are uh, just scrupulously clean. And if you read the novel, Ignatius Riley always made fun about how dirty they were. And um, Jerry had a little bit of concern about that, that people were getting the wrong impression about his hot dogs. But I am totally convinced after what I saw at his shop, nobody has anything to worry about eating the, a lucky dog out on the street. Well, Cynthia, I'm so grateful that we had this chance to talk about your book. Congratulations. And every Ignatius Riley fan out there really needs to run right out and get a copy of the Confederacy of Dunces cookbook. That's Cynthia Nobles from Baton Rouge, Louisiana author of A Confederacy of Dunces Cookbook. One has to wonder, though, what Ignatius would think of having a book written about him from our state's capital. The only excursion in my life outside of New Orleans took me through the vortex to the whirlpool of despair. Baton Rouge. When we come back from a short break, we continue our culinary look between the pages of A Confederacy of Dunces with Jerry Strahan, manager of Lucky Dogs Incorporated and author of Managing Ignatius, The Lunacy of Lucky Dogs and Life in the Quarter. Don't go anywhere. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now inviting you to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew with their new box subscription program shipped quarterly to your door with up to 10 surprise ingredients inside, it's like having a Mardi Gras parade through your kitchen all year long. To learn how to join the Camellia Brand crew, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Support also comes from Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets, tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. On this week's show, we're taking a look at John Kennedy Toole's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, a Confederacy of Dunces, and the major role that food plays between its pages. So far, we've spoken with actor Spud McConnell and cookbook author Cynthia Nobles. Now, we're heading back to the bustling streets of the French Quarter 
where our gluttonous hero searches for a job. Among the afternoon pedestrians who hurried past Paradise Vendors Incorporated, one formidable figure waddled slowly along. It was Ignatius. Stopping before the narrow garage, he sniffed the fumes from Paradise with great sensory pleasure, the protruding hairs in his nostrils analyzing, cataloging, categorizing, and classifying the distinct odors of hot dog, mustard, and lubricant. Breathing deeply, he wondered whether he also detected the more delicate odor, the fragile scent of hot dog buns. Ignatius J. Riley soon finds himself employed by Paradise Vendors, where he hawks weenies on the rollicking streets of the quarter. Here, Tool gives us the unforgettable image of Ignatius, dressed in pirate accessories and a white smock, lambasting the decadence of the modern world while brandishing his plastic sword. In the novel, Paradise Vendors becomes the fictional equivalent of Lucky Dogs, whose real-life vendors, like Ignatius, have turned away from mainstream society, seeking solace in working the streets. Lucky Dog, Lucky Dog! Lucky Dog owner Jerry Strahan is the author of Managing Ignatius, The Lunacy of Lucky Dogs and Life in the Quarter. We spoke with Jerry to discuss his iconic business and its legendary employees. There are people who drift in now and then who are fans of the book and just want to see the shop or talk to someone there. I had one gentleman send me or one lady send me a Constantinople refrigerator magnet in the mail. I've had a Mountie from uh, Canadian Mountie came down, read a Confederacy of Dunces, stood by the carts and came and visited me at the shop. But I have to be honest, more of our customers know us than they do the book. We have sold a lot more Lucky Dogs than they have sold copies of Confederacy of Dunces. I'm curious uh, if you think that Ignatius and Paradise Vendors didn't have quite that much of an effect. Why did you choose to name the book Managing Ignatius? Well, in the sense that it has an effect for the literary audience. Maybe not as much for the hot dog audience. It it was a brilliant book, and Toole was a phenomenal writer. I'm a storyteller. Toole was truly a brilliant writer, and it's a shame that he died before his time. I wish he would have lived. There's no telling what he could have done after that. I find it somewhat really interesting that people outside of New Orleans loved it as much as they did. The first time I read it, it was like going to work. So let's go back to the very beginning. How did Lucky Dog come about? What, are, what is its origins? In 1947, two brothers, Stephen and Erasmus Loyocano, came up with the idea of Lucky Dogs, and they designed the carts. Uh, the quarter was starting to boom back then with with soldiers coming home, I think they saw an opportunity, and they owned the business until 1970 when Douglas Talbot bought it. I started working for Doug in 1968 at Orange Julius, and I worked for him all through high school. And I was working on a doctorate at Tulane in history, I had a fellowship there, and then I just burned out. I resigned from the university, and Doug said, well, would you do me a favor and help train a new night manager for me? That gentleman didn't work out, so we started training another one, and that when didn't work out. So then it went from working there for weeks to a couple of months to a couple of decades to now. 
those original carts were very different from the carts that we see today. The original cart was approximately seven foot long. It had a Coleman burner. It had a double steamer. Uh, it just had a flat top on it. It's the type of cart that's basically described in a Confederacy of Dunces. The cart today is now 10 foot 6 inches long. It's propane operated. It has four sinks, hot and cold running water. It has a 22 jet burner, which will boil water. The earlier carts weighed approximately 150 pounds. This cart empty weighs approximately 650 pounds. Wow. Pushing a cart laden with supplies that during Mardi Gras could be close to 900 to 1,000 pounds, that's a heck of an increase for people to push a cart up. Well, you know, part of managing Ignatius and the lunacy of Lucky Dogs has to be the vendors. Lucky Dog! Lucky Dog, man! Lucky Dog! How you doing, yeah, brother? brother? All right, now. Oh, it's gonna be yang all night, you know what I mean? We ought to be here from Thursday to Sunday, and we're gonna do at least 5,000 hot dogs. 5,000. They show up five to seven days a week. They work long hours. It may be one of the most dangerous jobs in the city of New Orleans. Because you're handling money out on the street, and every street thug knows that you have cash, and every street thug knows that when you're pushing that cart in, your back is totally exposed. So it is dangerous in that sense, but they tend to leave us alone for the most part. What's the most highly desired corner? I would say that the top corners would probably be Toulouse and Bourbon, Ross and Estacantine Bourbon, Canal and Bourbon, uh, St. Peter and Bourbon. Certain people, though, like other corners for a variety of reasons. They might like the music that a certain club plays, or they might like prefer the certain clientele of another club. So they might not want one of those corners. All right, baby, this is it, right here on the corner, Toulouse and Bourbon. About to put it where we at. My name is Patrick, Patrick Hawthorne. All right, now, that's it. All the way till one, two o'clock in the morning. Uh, six days a week, at least 12 hours a day. They set their own schedule. They can come in as early as they want or up until, I'd say, 4.30 because the, the day managers that I have in the shop leave at 5. So they can come in at any time. Sometimes they will pair up with a friend of theirs, and one will take the cart out, work it all during the day. The other vendor might show up at 8 or 9 at night and work it until 4.30 or 5 in the morning and then bring the cart in. We let them set their own schedule so that they have the flexibility that they want. Oh, you're quick now, baby. You can get a hot dog right fast. You don't have to go to the restaurants. You come right now and get you a nice hot dog. Two minutes. No. What's up, brother? Sure. What you want on it? I got chili, onion, ketchup, mustard. Onion, ketchup, and mustard. You got it. And I just want mustard. Okay. Just give me eight dollars, man. Yeah, that's what I'm about to give you, brother. There we go. Thank you, brother. Thank you. So how does it go on any given day? Because it seems that in many ways, this is such a transient ebb and flow of characters. How do you know on any given day that you're going to have the right number of people show up? Or how, how does it work with job assignment? You don't know. Um, you take it one day at a time. Anything you learn in business management throughout the window, it's totally useless here. It's done on seniority as to who gets what corners. Some corners are better than others. So that's done on a seniority basis. 
and also done on a sales basis, a combination. And the vendors understand that. And I think they appreciate the fact that if for some reason I make a mistake and I put the wrong guy on the wrong corner, they can come up and say, wait a minute, Jerry, I, I think I deserve this corner for this reason. And either they'll win their case or they'll, they'll explain to why, why they shouldn't. So you assign the corners. Well, what we do is the most senior person can pick the corner he wants to work. And then we go down from there. Um, and as far as the vendors themselves, we've had a, a wide variety. Um, we've had people who have been corporate successes and for one reason or another have decided that corporate life was not where they wanted to be. For example, Choya, who worked for us, he would come work for us four or five months. Then he might take a freighter to Thailand. Then he might come work four or five more months. Then he might go and pan gold in Alaska. Then he would come to work for us and he'd go to Nicaragua. They drift in and out. I mean, I call it the great vendor migration. I know people are going to work for us. I just never know who's going to be there each day. They can come and they can go at will. Now, some vendors are um, maybe not as highly educated, but this also allows them a chance to be an entrepreneur themselves and to be successful. Now, does every vendor do what I would love him to do? Absolutely not. Do they do things that sometimes I cringe at? Yes, they do. But that happens in every business. Mine is just like going to a sitcom every day, and you just want to know what problem you're going to have to deal with today, and you deal with it on different levels with different people. You have to sit one-on-one -on -one and cover the problem with them in terms that they understand. What is the greatest length of time you've ever had one vendor work for you? James Hudson started working for us in about 1984. And until he had a stroke last year, he continued working for us. Uh, several vendors have been there more than 10 years. A few have been there 15. When someone comes into my office and says, look, I'm going to leave, I, I, I'm going to apply for a job somewhere else, I think that's phenomenal. If they can better themselves, that's fantastic. If it doesn't work out, then they're welcome back. And, you know, I always say that the swallows return to Capistrano and the vendors always return to us. Well, if you're a successful Lucky Dog vendor, can you expect more than minimum wage? Yes. When I was teaching school, uh, I knew I was in the wrong profession when I had one vendor making more than I was. Really? Yes. Now, here's the thing. It depends on the individual vendor. I one time gave a gentleman a raise and he quit. What? <laughs> well, what happened? He was living in a rooming house. He would eat out or eat, eat small things he bought at the grocery. Well, I gave him a raise. He moved into an apartment. He bought a television. He got pots and pans. He had bedspreads. He suddenly had roots. And it scared him. And I said, look, I'll take the raise back. You know, I'll hold it for you when you leave. Don't quit. But it got in his mind then that he had roots and he was tied down. And some of these people, in a sense, are like the old hobos and not in a derogatory term. This was especially true in the late 70s and early 80s when you had the soldiers returning from Vietnam. And we had a lot of those soldiers who did not fit back in a normal society and needed a certain freedom, needed to be able to set their own time. Might have had mental issues and needed to take two or three weeks off, but would be welcome when they came back. And that came into play a lot back then. You don't see it as much today, but you saw it a lot more back then. Does anybody ever jump ship and abandon a cart? Oh, that's happened on several occasions. I mean, uh, back in the 70s, I did something. The police department, it might have been early 80s, asked me that I not do again. One person did that, and I put one of dead or alive signs up in the quarter. 
Um, and they immediately trapped him within about an hour and a half. The, the poor guy that stole the money was ready to turn himself into the police because he thought they were going to hang him inside one of the places he was. And the police said, look, Jerry, you really can't do that. <laughs> so I've, I've refrained from that now. But back in the 70s, 80s, I think it was much more prevalent than today. We don't have that much problem. Uh, someone might come in 5 or $10 short, but they'll end up paying it back the next day. So it's not nearly the problem it once was. And when you have had the issue of an abandoned cart, how do you learn that the, uh, the cart's gone AWOL? Well, we make runs in the street every two hours at night. Our night manager is constantly on the street looking at the vendors, making sure they're doing what they're supposed to do, making sure the cart's there, that they have supplies. So he's taking an inventory of the corners every two hours. And then we've had so many people who've worked for us uh, over the last 40 years that I've been there. You develop friendships, and they're now working in bars or restaurants or driving buggies or whatever. If something happens, there's thousands of eyes in the quarter, and they'll pick up the phone and call. Jerry Strahan, Lucky Dog owner and author of Managing Ignatius. In a confederacy of dunces, it's written that, I quote, Ignatius belched the gas of a dozen brownies trapped by his valve. Can brownies really have that effect on the human body? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and an abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. Can brownies really give you a problem with gas, as Ignatius Riley claims in A Confederacy of Dunces? Well, I guess anything could happen if you consume a dozen brownies in one sitting like Ignatius did. But the combo of caffeine and high fat found in chocolate brownies can aggravate the digestive system of those with gastrointestinal issues. One of those issues could be gluten intolerance, a problem commonly suffered by many today. So, was Ignatius gluten intolerant? I guess that's a question that may never be answered. I'm Poppy Tooker, and Ignatius Riley sure knew a thing or two about real Louisiana Eats.
you've got a taste for jelly donuts, lucky dogs, and wine cakes, it's time to wash it all down with Ignatius's favorite soft drink, Dr. Nut. The Dr. Nuts seemed only as an acid gurgling down into his intestines. He filled with gas, the sealed valve trapping it just as one pinches the mouth of a balloon. Great eructations rose from his throat and bounced upward toward the refuse-laden bowl of the milk glass chandelier. Because a confederacy of dunces is a work of fiction, Often, readers will assume that Dr. Nutt is another one of John Kennedy Toole's creations, like Paradise Vendors. But Dr. Nutt is a real local soft drink. Or at least it was. Having disappeared from shelves decades ago, Dr. Nutt is as enigmatic as Ignatius himself. Even Spud McConnell, the man best known for playing Ignatius, had difficulty tracking one down when preparing for the role. You ever drink a Dr. Nut? Did I ever. When they did the play in 84, they managed to find Dr. Nuts, and I would wear them out. But when we did the play again when I did it in the 90s, late, couldn't find a Dr. Nut for anything. Luckily for Spud, Fortuna's wheel has spun upward. Designer Philip Collier is the author of Making New Orleans. His book brings to life forgotten products from the city's rich past through stories accompanied by images of vintage advertisements, labels, and photographs. Philip not only helped shed some light on the mysterious Dr. Nutt, but provides us with an alcoholic version that he believes closely resembles the original recipe. It is kind of mysterious. There's not a lot of uh, history on the drink. Uh, we know it was a very heavy almond-tasting drink, sort of like Dr. Pepper, people say, but really strong, uh, like Amaretto. It was produced by two or three uh, bottling companies, but the main one was World Bottling Company on the corner of Elysian Fields and Charters. And it was only a, produced from in the 30s and up until the late 40s. It came back again in the early 60s for three or four years, and then it disappeared again. A bottler in Jennings, Louisiana, brought it back in the 1970s, and everybody that remembered how Dr. Nutt tasted hated it. They thought this new drink tasted like cherry Coke, and uh, the reason the bottler brought it back, we think, is because of the popularity of Confederacy of Dunces. Well, of course, your specialty is graphic design, so if you would please... Tell us, what did a bottle of Dr. Nut look like? The bottle, as far as I know, was pretty much always the same. It had a bushy-tailed squirrel on it eating a a nut. I don't know if it was an almond, but it was eating a nut. That was constant. But the sort of the slogans changed. It seemed like they changed every couple of years. One of them, a lot of them are pretty boring, too. One, (laughs) One was, it's delicious. Oh, that's good. It's delicious. Yeah, right. Creative. Uh, Try Dr. Nutt, the professional mixer. Another one was originated in New Orleans for New Orleans taste. Uh, Another one was the sure cure for thirst. And this is the the weird one. It's a food, not a fad. The other thing is in in the advertisements, they used to have a man on the beach with the squirrel. (laughs) And instead of a bathing suit, he's wearing a, a nutshell. 
for a bathing suit. The man is? The man is. <laughs> so back in the 30s and 40s, at Mardi Gras time, a lot of people dressed as that character. But this is a better one. There was an old gentleman named Charles Manson, not our friend from California, <laughs> who was an elderly gentleman that was a jogger. Well, a lot of Mardi Gras parades back in the 30s and 40s, he would lead the parade jogging with a sign on him advertising Dr. Nutt, but also says, like, life begins at 75 or life begins at 76, all according to how old he was that year. <laughs> That's wonderful. So, Philip, you've cracked the code on how to recreate a Dr. Nutt? Yes, so we could try it. Well, let's give it a stab. All right. So what is the formula? And I will proceed to mix this up. Okay. Well, okay, it's very simple. It's two to one. You're going to take four ounces of amaretto. Okay. And then what? Then you're going to take two ounces of regular old Dr. Pepper. Poured over ice? Over ice. Well, are you ready to give your experiment a try? I am. Okay. Cheers, Philip. Cheers. Mm-mm. It's good. It really is. It's delicious. Maybe a little sweet, but it's good. Well, sometimes a little sweet is a good thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Cheers again. An alcoholic Dr. Nut? Yeah, baby. How, you mean you're making <laughs> Dr. Nut from scratch with booze in it? Yeah. Or are you just going, okay, if you find a Dr. Nut, put some bourbon in it, and there you go. Well, you can find a recipe on our website. See, give okay, it a try. But but uh, watch your sugar level when you do that. <laughs> well, I do that on Sundays <laughs> when I don't have diabetes, you know. I gotcha. So there you go. Before Spud left our studio, he had one more story to share with us about his long relationship with a confederacy of dunces. When the, uh, what was it, the 25th anniversary of the, of the book came out, they had that black and purple bound special edition put out. And uh, I got one of the original, one of the first copies that was uh, signed by Andre Kudrescu. They had a, a, a little opening statement in there. And I had it on my bookshelves in my home with my oak built-in bookcases with the beautiful glass doors amongst a bunch of other stuff. And... Um, Hurricane Katrina came and flooded my house. The book was a half an inch above the waterline, a half an inch. I mean, the, everything on the shelves below it ruined, but my book, Confederacy of Dunces, in the case, the black and the purple book with Andre Kudrescu's signature, a half an inch above the waterline. I salvaged it. So we boxed up a bunch of stuff, and we brought it over to my wife's family warehouse. So we put it in there. Rats ate my book. <laughs> I mean, rats ate the book. They ate They ate Andre Kudrescu's name out of it. They ate all the edges of it. They chewed off whole corners, you know, to the point. And it's like, and, 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 and they didn't need a lot of stuff. They didn't need any of my Huey Long stuff. Well, I guess that goes to show you that even to rats, Ignatius is delicious. Well, there you go. <laughs> That's Spud McConnell, 
our very own modern day Ignatius. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, and producer Blake Longlinay. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.